Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Oh, good. Three syllables. Thank you. I did it. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to episode 40 something. What goddamn episode is it? Anyway, yeah, it's power language. <laughs> yeah, I got it. It's, uh, I've had a few glasses That's of wine. That's from Tony to Robbins. So. Power yeah, words. it's the power of taboo language. Yeah. <laughs> That's shocking the viewers. Like, wake up. It's the Good Point <laughs> podcast. God <Yeah>. damn it. <laughs> Men are lazy. I won't Shocker. say anything worse. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, we actually are just, we're kind of sneaking this into the middle of a week, this episode. Yeah, we're, we're throwing it all in a weird schedule. Yeah, we're just uh, mixing things up. We uh, do a terrible job, so we're trying to do a terrible job at different intervals. So the, the, the only difference, <laughs> changes things. I, I think maybe the only difference is Jeremy's voice is a little husky, of course, or what do you say? Yeah, it's hoarse. Hoarse, that's like the word, a, yeah. Yeah. Because I've been, You've been talking at work all, all day. day. Yeah, I went from work to like a dinner meeting and now into a podcast. It's 9.30 at night and I've been talking since 8 a.m. roughly. So what's your secret? <clears throat> My secret you talking going? all day and, and keeping yeah. a horse. <laughs> well, it's certainly I have no secret to keeping your voice crystal clear. Um, the secret to staying awake all day uh, is to drink coffee and then to drink wine after coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All of the things that you hate to do, and I never did before, but now I have to do just to support this pathetic shell of a body that I exist inside of. Yeah, which brings us to today's yeah. good point: <laughs> how to live I wondered, with a pathetic it, shell. It, that is an interesting question. Do, do you think with? Because I've never had a cup of coffee. Um, You've never had you any cup with, of coffee. When I was five, I had a sip, and then I decided it was not for me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But there's all coffee's evolved a lot since whatever coffee well, you had. Th- I just never liked anything like candy with coffee flavor or they have this this thing, I don't know if they mm. have it in the Netherlands, this mocha cake and it's like butter with coffee flavor and sugar. And I always mm. thought it was the most awful thing, so I thought coffee's mm. not for me. Yeah, you know, uh I didn't drink coffee for a long time, but uh, as my tongue started to die, that it like the cells <laughs> And it became less yeah. receptive to flavors. You, you, you get uh, the old man I, palate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, it's like sardines suddenly taste amazing. <laughs> yeah. Olive, all these things mushrooms. that I was like, yucky. Yeah, exactly. So now yeah. like, I'm like, mm, is that moldy? I'd like to see if I can taste it. <laughs> so whatever. <laughs> but with, yeah, maybe my question with coffee is there's an upper, you get an energy boost, but they're not actual calories. So it's you just... Crash, yeah. There is a, you pay a price or you don't think yeah. so? Yeah, yeah, you definitely do. But they've also shown it's like it helps with cancer, so I'm betting on that. Okay. Kristen yeah. actually uh, makes me drink it now, so she's like, it's Why? good for your health. She said it's good for my health. I'll, I'll live longer. So. How long do you want to live? <laughs> Is that pot? Uh, that's a good question. As long as it takes for this podcast to become a hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Might be a long, long time. Yeah. But uh, uh, when I, would you consider it a hit? Consider what? When would you consider the podcast a hit? What What would be the metric? Oh, right. Well, 
That's a good question. Maybe that is a good segue into today's topic. Because uh, I don't I don't know. I've always said uh, 10,000 uh, people a week listening to the podcast would be great. Because then I could quit my job and uh, live off the sponsorship dollars. But then I'd be a slave to this podcast. So Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, what, I have no idea. What are the top... What's what's considered a hit podcast? It's like nine million listeners or something. Yeah, there are podcasts now with uh, millions of listeners, but nothing with like a billion. Like on YouTube, there's a new record that was set by uh, that new that that Spanish pop song, or the um, you know the one I'm talking about. It's no, like it I'm replaced sure. si- it replaced that Psy YouTube video, yeah, Gangnam yeah. Style. Yeah. Gangnam Style was the most popular video on YouTube, and now it's this, uh, it's killing me that I don't remember, and everyone on the other end of the line is like singing it, and like, oh, you're so stupid, you don't know, but it's like a Puerto Rican we'll put it in the show uh, pop song. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely yeah. put it in the show notes. And also, I think it's a very Western uh, metric, because probably in China, there's tons of videos on another social network that we have no idea of that has way right. more viewers. Like a billion views is, is, a billion views is not that much in China. Yeah, it's like a minor, minor song. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I, I think it is actually a segue into the, what I thought I'd discuss. I just got back from D.C. I was visiting family in Washington, D.C., um, your nation's capital, or the nation you live in, the United States mm-hmm. of America. Yeah. And I did, you know, when you're in D.C., it's pretty much the city of museums. Um, there, you know, because the Smithsonian's based there. If you go down to the mall, there's like dozens of museums. I went to a bunch of museums, including a new museum. I always go to the Hirshhorn Great Art Gallery, but I went to the new um, Museum for African-American History and Culture. And then one day, actually, I also went to some museums outside of town. I went to Baltimore, and we were like, we just wanted to go to Baltimore because, you know, it's kind of, it's cool. Um, it's different. How far and is Baltimore from D.C.? It's like 45 minutes. It's basically like... A suburb of DC, but no one from Baltimore would say that, of course. But I if thought it was Baltimore like New- was close to New York. Uh, or is no, it another it's Baltimore? Probably closer to Philadelphia. Um, so, oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's it's very close to to Washington DC. You can drive there in like forty five minutes. And so, by any other city's definition, like New York City would be like considered part of New York City or something. But Baltimore has a very unique identity. And anyway, I went to a museum there, and I didn't stay long, and that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I went with Kristen and her twin sister. We went to the Visionary Art Museum, which is a museum for outsider art. Uh, and I thought, I was really excited about going to this museum. And um, my excitement immediately diffused, uh, like as we were parking the car. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was wrong with the parking? Well, like it wasn't the parking so much to say as the exterior of the building, um, like already sort of set up an expectation about what is outsider art. And I thought that's why it might be interesting for us to discuss it, because, you know, you think of outsider art as a definition. It's art that doesn't belong in, you know, the regular art world. And we often talk about this on a podcast, like that there are more voices that are unheard than are heard and there's certain like gatekeepers in the art world that keep certain people in and other people out and um this was interesting because you know like this museum made it very clear to me why these voices weren't in but also they were in a different kind of museum like you could tell that there was an aesthetic and why i say like when we pulled up it was that the whole facade of the building was covered in a mosaic 
that was spiraling and it was made of mirrors <laughs> and sort of had floral shapes. And I thought to myself, that just looks like really like a really tacky museum. <laughs> and it, it's hard to describe. Did you, it like, did you at any point feel uh, sort of uh, you felt guilty for f- being on a high horse? Yeah, no, but that's the thing. Like I was like, no, we're going to give this place a chance. And I was because uh, really the, I'm, I'm I'm curious that you see the museum from the outside, and then some construction in your mind, based on your education and your friends, tells you that yeah, that is tacky. But did did you? at that moment think about like is that my position and should I be open and understand why it is the way it is that's exactly you know that was my feel that was my feeling and so I went in anyway you know and and also my two sister I'm sorry rather my partner and her sister who's her twin sister was with us and they both have art educations um, and it was kind of their idea to go here in the first place so but they were also like even more sour than me right right away so because, we get in and we actually got me, in it's very interesting to think about what why do we consider things tacky we talked about that a little bit before but th- this this yeah. feeling yeah well that's why i thought it'd be an interesting topic as well and yeah my initial instinct was like why am i so turned off by this but then as i because started it, to go it, through what's the interesting museum, about it what's interesting is that all the classic uh ways to judge an artwork don't count anymore. So we don't look at skill and mm-hmm. we don't look at a certain classic sense of composition and all those things are not relevant in contemporary art. So how do you right. judge outsider art then when those rules are out the window? Well, that's why I, my sort of the, the point I'm making very early on in this podcast is like there seem to be certain rules for outsider art that I, and then they are aesthetic uh, as I proceeded through the museum. Um, specifically mosaic as a craft seemed to be prevalent like the idea of making images out of pieces of things whether it was mirrors and glass or toast or like uh, beans or like rice krispies like there was <laughs> there was like a hundred but that's maybe an economic that uh, necessity but it could be an economic necessity that's a good that's a good point and there have been uh, artists in the art world that have used different materials as um, and have like managed to reshape our definition of art right but what I what I kept seeing was similar patterns so then my question was what has this museum collected stuff that looks like outsider art and if it looked like contemporary art would they exclude it if it was made by an outsider and like so was an out, is outsider art defined by its aesthetic or is it defined by its sociology I guess that was the question that I had um and one of the answers came to me as we went into the bathroom. We went to the into the basement, and there was a <laughs> the whole answer wall came to you like, when you when you started <laughs> peeing. Yeah, like there was this section down in the basement. It was like the like it was like the shrine of farts, or something it was <laughs> and it was like there was like a fart machine that made fart noises and like different quotes from various farting celebrities and stuff and and weird collages <laughs> it was just like and but there was a crowd of people that like kept coming through and pressing it and interacting with this artwork in a way that um i guess i haven't seen before <laughs> 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 like people were regen- like excited they were laughing and it was really badly made like it, there was the craft of this thing was terrible like you could see the glue like things were peeling off like it looked like you know really 
badly made. Um, but the joy that people got from just hearing different fart sounds. <laughs> I make yeah, a really well, bad point when, to start when, this podcast off, but it was like the popular part of it, the stuff that turned me well, off turned out to be exciting for other people. But what's interesting is that by which metric do you... Um, I don't like the word judging, but by which metric do you yeah. decide if an artwork is for you or not? And a lot of people will say, well, that appeals to me. My, uh, It's beautiful and I'm drawn to it. But one of the most important metrics for me is, is it distinctive? So whether you like it or not, is it a unique something that you, you remember and that uh, isn't like everything mm-hmm. else? And so maybe you were turned off because everything was so similar. Yeah, well, also, I'd like, I'd clearly I'd seen this sort of thing before, right? Like, um, you can only see so many paintings made out of used bottle caps, <laughs> or, you know, but, like, but is, portraits of also, Ray Charles made out of kidney beans before you're is, like, if, oh, if, for example, if, if you would go to the Freeze Art Fair, and you had never been to an art fair before, you would kind of also feel that everything's the same. Well, yeah, and you, and you get upset about that as well, and that's insider art. That's the problem with that. It's like, it's yeah, but it, but maybe it's any category where you are not accustomed to, and then soccer fans will see all the differences between the players and their moves, and a novice will be like, well, they're just running around. I don't see what's happening. That yeah yeah I suppose what you're saying like yeah so one of the people most people feel like outsiders when they go to a museum right like. The true, you know, and that's why I thought talking about the audience in relationship with the artwork is interesting, right? Like, so if if uh, Raphael Rosendahl's um, second cousin who doesn't know about art goes to a museum, then she might feel excluded and not understand the work. And you'd be like, no, but this is a brilliant piece. She's like, I just don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it looks like a, a cube. Like, what what's so important about this cube? Um, and that, and I think at the Outsider Art Museum, the presumption is the opposite, which is like you come into the museum with all of the information that you need to enjoy the work. Like, So quite often the subject matter that I saw in the museum in my time there for the exhibition called Yummy. Uh, <laughs> sorry. But the fact that the exhibition... <laughs> The fact that the exhibition Jeremy, is called Jeremy, it's, Yummy it's is really sh- th- this awesome. episode is very shocking to me. It, it, like you, you're discovering your elitism. <laughs> it's awesome. you've, your whole life you've been the man of the people, and you find out no, oh, it's not true. Well, that's why I thought it would be interesting to talk about because yeah. I was just like, well, I, I, I really gave it a shot, Raph, and and I'll tell you, I gave it a longer shot than my than, than Kristen or Nora, uh, her sister, because. They demanded we leave, like, urgently at a certain point. <laughs> well, I, I have a similar feeling. Like, I've always been in favor of wide distribution, and I've talked about it before, how wide distribution somehow results in a different kind of art. So, I, in theory, I like wide distribution, but in reality, what's what I find in comic book stores doesn't touch me or doesn't appeal to me as much as what I find in museums. But economically, but no I find the comic com- book model. It, 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 I'm just saying, economically, I find the comic book model much a much more noble distribution of images than precious status objects. But all I'm saying is, no one would call a comic book outsider art, right? Um, because unless the I guess unless the comic book was shown in a museum, um, 
but otherwise they would say no it's a comic book it, you know it's defined by its own aesthetic and it its has own. its own subculture yeah yeah exactly it has the comic book store as its exhibition venue well but the outsider I artist think, I think is not supposed to be shown also, in a museum yeah but outsider art is also related to really eccentric people on the verge of mentally challenged like hospitalized people that's can we can either of us name like a famous outsider artist um trying to think there's some that became that would enter the mainstream that were considered outsider before right but they weren't always like I think that stereotype of the mentally unstable comes from like Maybe even within outsider art, there's different uh, camps. So there's there's an artist called Robert Williams, and a lot of people know his work. He made paintings that Guns N' Roses used uh, in their album sleeve, and uh, uh, mm-hmm. sort of grotesque monster paintings, highly realistic, uh, surrealistic. And he started Juxtapose magazine. So that was kind of outsider art. He, he was not accepted, but. He was very driven and got a lot of people together, and now that became a whole genre on its own, sort of a mesh of street art and illustration and all the things that don't fit into contemporary art. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I think when they began, that was kind of outsider art, but by now there's tons of galleries and museums that uh, pay a lot of attention to that. So maybe outsider art, by definition, as soon as it becomes successful, it's no longer outsider art. Yeah, I think I think that's not a bad way of thinking about it. Like, there's also, do you know Alex Gray? Um, he like no. paints all these sort of like spiritual paintings. And I think he has a hmm. pretty huge following. Like, you know, when you see a painting with like a, a third eye in the center, and someone's like yeah. surrounded by well, they, like they, orbs and stuff. They, they recently discovered this abstract artist called Hilm of Klimt. She was Finnish, and she painted completely or almost completely abstract works way before all the famous abstract artists but she did it mm. for spiritual reasons so there were kind of diagrams of chakras or energy points and meditational diagrams um, so she came from another uh, discourse is the word they use um, mm-hmm. and now she's been discovered and, and part of the canon and she kept her works hidden for a long time but that a lot of outsider art seems a lot of mandalas and chakras and and sort of semi-spiritual things you know like not fully religious art but very do they call that is she part of the visionary art movement like it's like early 20th century because 10 years before Kandinsky okay because visionary art is supposed to be like, you know, art that kind of transcends uh, current awareness. So an abstract artist might be... Cons- it's usually this spiritual painting style that I'm referring to with Alex it, Gray. It, it reminds me of, of ambient New Age music with uh, uh, record covers yeah. with lots of dolphins and lots of symmetry. and Like Mandela's and, and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's kind of the Alex Gray School of Thought. And they had a bunch of paintings like that. And it's called the Visionary Art Museum. So there were some of those types of works within this museum. There were definitely Mandela's aplenty. There was one that was like a mechanical Mandela that was moving around. And then mixed with the in that was what I would consider. So that's like visionary art or that kind of like spiritual art that is considered outsider seemingly because it's... Um, I don't know, like, it's viewed as something that other people, like, maybe critics or the audience can't fully understand. It's like someone that's seeing beyond our current realm, and that's kind of spiritual in a way 
that only maybe Marina Abramovic can understand. And then <laughs> it's it's funny whenever people have those visions and then they put it down with regular physical materials and then of course it's like after your acid trip and you've made drawings of your trip and it just looks like a bad drawing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then the other kind of art that's from the outsider art, as I see categorically, or that, and what I saw in this museum too, is like what I would consider folk art, actually, which is comes back to our conversation last episode around craft, where there's like it's some depiction of a common of an image that's already commonly known and celebrated, but using another material or misusing a material that's just available like a an old like a uh, piece of metal like an old an old gas tank uh you know maybe some that, that sounds some a lot parts. like appropriation but without the connections to the art world what's well, like a you know like like an old man made out of broomsticks you know like uh, you know it's like it's kind of or like a robot kind of care yeah yeah, like yeah. but if, if a famous contemporary artist did the same thing it would be called appropriation yeah i seemingly it this is i think the folk art categories may be the most interesting outsider art to discuss because it's like it's considered folk art because it's appropriate yeah it, it's using common symbols uh i mean folk means of the people uh and yeah. then and then seemingly like available materials, like materials that would have otherwise been wasted. Uh, I don't know if that's actually the proper definition, but that's how I understand it. Um, at least when people talk about folk art, that's what I think of. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it, it, it gets really complicated when you go back in time and, and look at uh, art that was made for the courts and then art that people would make for each other that wasn't kept. And maybe some people have kept traces of it but we we always think of art history as whatever rich people decided they wanted to keep right well also like if you look at you know folk art is kind of craft based or it's decorative let's say it's decorative primarily like that's a slippery slope as well because what's decorative well i mean it's just in contrast to what is considered fine art i suppose yeah like folk art is considered if you look at I think if you would come from another planet and, and you was, there were like a few pretentious people that said my work is not decorative but the aliens would look at it it's like well that thing is hanging on your wall and that thing is hanging on what what's yeah. the different function no no I don't disagree with you in fact like the most in, like the you know one of the interesting things I think if you think about folk art is it's usually associated with laborers or tradespeople, right so it'll be like some guy that works on a farm or in a you know or he's a mechanic or a woman who's like you know whoever it is they're less they're privileged, usually, let's they're less privileged. and so it's like as soon as they're less privileged it's like oh yeah yeah they're a folk artist right they they're oh what they're doing is like you know primarily decorative and they're, they're oh look they put dishes all over their house uh yeah, you know it, it, they, I, I really cringe when people say this is this is art and that's decorative because it basically means uh, i'm i'm in on a certain theory that other people can't comprehend mm-hmm. and I'm I'm yeah I've been hanging out with the right people and it really basically humans all have a capacity for seeing and feeling and then to say that someone's feelings are less intellectual than others is really offensive to me. Well, I think what's particularly offensive uh and I think we probably agree on this is quite often too like it like the indigenous or the like the arts that existed before the art market <laughs> are considered folk artists, right? Like folk art. I think, you know, um, 
we talked about this a little bit via craft last time, but I don't think we actually talked about indigenous art. You mean I something like a, like a tile design in Arabic world, the kind of abstract imagery that is not part of abstract art history? Yeah, or it might be it like... Um, before there was abstract painting. Yeah, or it might be like an indigenous culture like has a series of artifacts that they maybe use traditionally in some kind of a ritual, but they no longer do, but they still practice the art of making yeah. that thing and they might interpret it mm-hmm. through a contemporary lens um, but it's still it's up until it's recognized by a museum it's considered folk art right it's like um, yeah. Yeah. and there's a certain kind of gallery that trades in that kind of art but um, I, I, I it, it is interesting um, you went to one bad outside art museum but probably if you dig around the internet you're going to find amazing things and you're going to find things that are more surprising because you're so much part of the Western discourse, you're so yeah. deep in that, that it's really hard to surprise you when you go to a gallery. Well, that's what I was disappointed with, to be honest with you. I think like... But the, you just went to one place. Like you need to No, I know, I know. Yeah. So I think that this particular museum didn't do a great job because I, I wasn't surprised and it seemed like they were reinforcing negative stereotypes about what constitute folk art. It was like, oh, strange oddities from, you know, crazy people. And yeah. I just don't think that that's... Well, maybe the really. whole premise of, of an institution dedicated to outsider art is, is just an oxymoron. It's just a, as soon as you, you decide to categorize it or formalize it, it's just, yeah, it loses its fun. Well, on the internet, there's a form, there's a lot of kind of outs, what might, might be considered outsider art. And I, I assume that we are eventually going to talk about this. But um, while I was in, it's funny, while I was at this festival in Germany last month, I was talking to an artist who, I, who specifically worked in shaders, like he was coding his own shaders. And for the our listeners who don't know what a shader is, it's like a kind of computational um, visual language that allows you to create like, you know, kind of these crazy visual results. It's like a programming language for, for visualization in a way. Um, it's hard to explain. It exploits the GPU and all kinds of like... Uh, kind of creative ways. You have to be creative at it within like the constraints of the GPU. That's the graphics processing unit in your computer. And I was talking to this one guy who was amazing at writing shaders. Like these shaders, Raf, were just like out of control. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were like, you know, reflecting pools with like tentacles passing through them, shimmering reflections, dripping you know spiraling things and i was like i was like do you ever show this stuff And he's like no i'm not an artist i just do this for fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i was like are you crazy like i want you know so we we had this thing set up where we could show work but i was like it's really definitely an artist that freshness that freshness then as soon as it enters a gallery and it becomes prints or it's on big monitors very hard to capture that freshness Mm mm-hmm the, the freshness of his feeling of it it's of not him playing our, it's around just, without a feeling of responsibility yeah like he showed me he had about like 100 or 200 shaders they had written in the last few months he's like oh yeah check this like and each of them was like incredible um and it was but like his but his assumption that it wasn't art was kind of also framing uh, I guess his ability to create even more of it, like he was less judgmental of each one, which I found found quite thrilling, and reminded me of being a young artist, right? Like it reminded me of when like I just created one experiment after the next, and I didn't really care if anyone mm. liked it or not. Um, no responsibility. And then that sort of 
But then that kind of doubles back on this idea of like the lonely, the folk artist being this sort of hermit, <laughs> you know, like that just creates, you know, without any intervention from the outside world, sort of works alone. Um, and that's in antithesis to what we talked about earlier, which is it's art for the people. Because ultimately, though, it does seem like to be art for oneself that's somehow selfless in a way, like um, that's not about oneself, but simply for the, a pure pers- pursuit of joy. Yeah. Wait, I, I think I've often, it's, it's really easy to become disenchanted with contemporary art. You just go to so many fairs and galleries and you, there's so much money and power and often it's just not interesting. But then you start looking outside of the art world at images that could be interesting, whether it's a comic book art or movies or video games. And then I think what sets it apart is presentation or like how things relate in a space. I think that you'll look at over the shoulder of someone making these things and you're like, oh, that's amazing. But Mm -hmm. to then make it work in a space is a whole nother thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I... Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, um, like this, you know, guy that was making shaders reminded me that there is this, there are scenes that sometimes develop around these things that are end up becoming subcultures, right? So the demo scene was like, is is something we've mentioned before in the past. Or deviant, deviant art is is huge. It's one of the biggest social networks, I think, after the main ones. Exactly. And so, you know, what defines its value is potentially in that case on the what the internet has allowed is for these basically for hermits or people that would otherwise not be are just misunderstood by their local communities let's put it that way right like they're not actually hermits they're just misunderstood for them to get together and yeah form they just don't it, also maybe they have a very different sense of humor like the art world has its own and i think there's a certain way of talking, and even if everybody in the art world feels like a different person, I think if you look at it from a distance, they behave very similar, and then there's certain people that just don't fit in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, not everyone fits into, as someone put it to me recently, like they're like, I want this to be more contemporary art daily than, uh, I can't remember what they referred to as the opposite of contemporary art daily, but like... Deviant yeah, then deviant art, right? Like, and I was like, "What does that mean?" Like, you know, contemporary art daily. What do you want it to look like? Nothing, because um, contemporary <laughs> art daily has this just like totally uh, clean aesthetic. Well, it, it, my my idea is that the, uh, contemporary art, the aesthetic, what people like is when you're closer to a curator than a maker. So that's why appropriation is favored. So if and and with the least handwriting added of the artist it's more like a gesture i'm interested in these things opposite of each other you mean in a in a traditional art context the the self is removed from the yeah the gesture or the, the yeah yeah. But the, the, yeah so um when i think of deviant art i think of people developing their handwriting and like making fantastic creatures and worlds and mm-hmm. creating a lot and an emphasis on creation and in contemporary art, if you want something to look like contemporary art, then you, I think it's best to work with found objects and put as little personality into it as possible. Right. I mean, I and I, I worked at, when I first started, uh, before I was an artist, I, I designed interfaces. And I was part of one of these subcultures that we were talking about. And I put a tremendous amount of energy into this, pushing the scene forward. But I was completely ignorant of anything else outside of that scene. Um, and so various like tropes and like vocabulary emerged out of 
that isolation. Um, and I was talking to a friend uh, a little while ago, and she was part of a separate community around the same age when I was when she was a teenager. This is the same when I was a teenager. She'd stay up all night, just like I would stay up all night working on interfaces, and she'd stay up all night um, designing or basically drawing comic books. Like there's this scene I can't I can't remember what it's called, uh, but where you like create graphics for uh, alternate universes. Like so, you might do like Harry Potter. Uh, you take that as like a theme and then you create a whole alternate universe where maybe Harry Potter and Mario hang out or something like that. And then you create narratives and someone draws all of the frames for that, like all of the the images to accompany the narrative. And you get really well known as like a character uh, artist within that scene. And she was like one of the best and she was a teenager and it gave her all this like power and privilege but she was telling me she had like this Wacom tablet and the craft was like super important and then she had a staff of other people in that scene that she'd like farm out other work to <laughs> she was like a bit of a queen in the scene um, and there was a kind of a whole hierarchy to it and you know as you, as you discuss it I was you know she's now a contemporary artist or she's studying to be one in Chicago and she's at SAIC and stuff and you're just like well you're already at the very top <laughs> You know, like you made it all the way to the top. And I remember when I was at the top of my interface game, like Apple was calling me. It was like, you know, and then I was like, no, none of it matters. It's all about contemporary art. I can remember thinking like in art school, it made everything I'd done before seem stupid. (laughs) There's like some point in the line in the sand. Do you think that's because, do you think that's, that's an intellect? Is that a yearning to be taken seriously or is it because the museums have the most beautiful spaces? Yeah, I it was like this is the thing that I that I thought was maybe interesting to discuss is that what where does that line exist and then at what point do we does that realization is that realization a point from which you cannot return so once you have that realization you you can't mm-hmm. go back is naivete or the not knowing and or ignorance well, of something it, else I think, a part of what makes it I think net art here is is an interesting thing to look at because you can be internet famous but not museum famous and you'll have way more of an audience than you would have in a museum. But the, the mm-hmm. eyeballs in the museum somehow count more than the general eyeballs on the internet. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen people jump into internet, from internet um, fame into like mainstream fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they did that was by trading off some of the aesthetics from the internet for popular aesthetics, right? Or popular craft. So they might say, like, or, or, on the internet, to, they're taking internet ideas into more traditional forms like sculpture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you and I have both uh, done that to, to varied success. In your case, much success. In my case, no success. But, like, you know, it, it, and some people are able to make that transition really elegantly. And you're like, wow, how did they do that? They figured it out. But, I, you know, actually, I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on whether you feel like they're different things or whether there's any compromise in that um, exercise. Because on the few occasions where I've tried to make it work, I've never felt quite comfortable because I've abandoned something that... Well, was, you, you're, you're really... Your key thing is performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so making performances when, when physical, you, or especially internet performances, is really weird and doesn't always work. Yeah, but then the the way you could making physical things might not be the best path into the museum. You want to do your performances in a museum. 
Um, yeah, I've done performances in museums, and they've been just different performances. And I on, but, recently, I've started to include. Maybe that's internet. an interesting question. If if the, those performances, for example, performances at tech conferences are, are always fun because everything is kind of sales uh, pitches, and then all of a sudden, someone comes in and just has nothing to sell, and it's just fun. So in that context, it's really easy to make people laugh. <laughs> well, you remind me that I was talking to a, an artist and. I th- not your you've mentioned this too but like i'll often do different like contexts now like a business conference or i'm doing like a book fair in a few weeks and in those contexts i'm hired i was talking to this friend who said oh yeah i do that sometimes where i'm just like i'm the crazy person you know they need a certain number of crazy people in the lineup um just to make things you know give for a conversation topic you're like the jester i was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, regular people give their like you know important talks, and then I get up and I like you know act like a fool, and that's what I'm there for. Um, but I never, I I didn't really think of it that way. I thought like, well, I'm refreshing, <laughs> like I'm getting people to reconsider what they already what they expect. Um, but it was this you know through a different lens potentially. I am an outsider artist, right? If in a business context, I'm certainly not an insider business person. Um, I really detest the language typically of like contemporary business. And so, uh, you know, in those contexts, I'm very comfortable being an outsider. In fact, as an outsider, I feel like that's my advantage. But in arts, being an outsider is rarely seen or I rarely rarely considered it much of an advantage um, because so often... um, I I think that most artists... um, really don't see boundaries and they they can be just as interested in a comic book or a movie or a novel or a, mm-hmm. a, a street performer everything's very hybrid but as soon as it comes to defining yourself it's a survival strategy like I'm, I want to be attached to this name of this institution or to that name because that will help me survive and focus on my work and so then you start putting barriers it's a survival strategy yeah, I mean, it ends up being, well, part of good marketing, of course, is positioning and categorization. I was talking to someone earlier this evening, and he was in opera, and he was talking about, you know, he works on the fringes of opera, like, so he's, you know, doing, he was, like, talking to me about his augmented reality opera, and his, like, um, like human trafficking opera, stuff like this, mm-hmm. like, these are all real things. And he was talking about how we were both we were both talking about how like if you're ahead, you're ahead of the audience as well, right? And you kind of it's your responsibility to kind of bring them along, but you might be a few years ahead and they're not ready for it yet. Um, and you'll be recognized in retrospect, of course. But um, the argument we were also making, it, it, I was or I was making to him, was in business. This happens as well. So when uh, a business enters a new category, tries to create a new category, it's a tremendous opportunity. But it also costs a lot of money to advertise this new category. So, yeah, like, what is this? Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. So, like, if you're the first toothpaste maker ever, uh, then which happened? That's a real. That was <laughs> yeah. a category that, that came out of nowhere. Paste and, on pe- my teeth. What do yeah. I need that for? Well, in fact, toothpaste was unpopular for I think like at least fifty years before they found a way I think sliced to bread re-categorize as well, right? Like, why would I need to? Ha- why would I need someone to slice my bread? Oh, really? I didn't know about that one. But yeah, yeah there are myriad while. examples from the, the business world. 
And and usually that's why it's always an advantage almost to be the second, not the first person. Because <laughs> you let the first person mm-hmm. do all the hard work of building out the category, building an audience, and then you learn like what they Facebook like and don't after like. Friends did. Yeah, and then you just come along and you sw- you swoop in and you pick you fix all their mistakes and you and you and you replace the incumbent. Like Apple famously takes this position in every new market, right? So they'll watch everyone else do a smartwatch and then they'll do theirs and and dominate. Or they watched everyone else make a smartphone, you know, and do a crummy job, and then they're like, oh, and here's the iPhone. It fixes all those problems. <laughs> And so thanks, thanks everyone for getting the press to write about this and, you know, marketing campaigns that were spent. And we can now do the same thing for half as much money and uh, totally disrupt you. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's not usually the right, you know, strategy to be first, but to get back to outsider artists or a folk artists, um, like there's probably a distinction. Like let's leave folk artists and let's just say that outsider artists could just be an artist that's far ahead of their time. Uh uh, and they're yeah, first like, considered like a crazy genius that's a bit more crazy than genius. That's right. Yeah, and then later, like so, Buckminster Fuller is one of my favorite examples historically because people, you know, Buckminster and Fuller, as you know, invented like well, maybe you don't know the Bucky Dome or the geodesic dome. I um, mean, and and all kinds of other things like theories about molecular structures and stuff. And he used to give these talks, and you can look them up online. I'll try and include something, an example in the show notes where people are laughing hysterically at his talk, but he was delivering a serious lecture. <laughs> you know, and uh, Marshall Just McClellan, like you. similarly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the best joke that I could play on the whole world is that everything I'm saying is absolutely serious. Um, yeah, but like the public wasn't ready for it, right? And they're, they're, this, this, that discomfort was ex- exhibited in, in, in terms of laughter. But um, but in fact, you know, history proved that yeah, those people were I, I, I saw... I've been following the work of Robert Crumb ever since I'm maybe 13 or 14. I used to draw a lot of comics. The graphic novelist, yeah. Yeah, and I just knew him as a a comic book artist because I was into comics. And then slowly that work became... It was clear that of all the underground comics, all the 60s hippie comics, uh, he was very prolific and his work was the most uh, distinctive and had the biggest appeal, at least to me. But he seemed to be picked out of out of the batch. And then at some point, the art world was interested in his work, and he started showing his work in art context. Um, I remember a curator friend of mine whose house was completely filled with books, and she was a bit older, so maybe late 50s. So she wasn't so in tune with pop culture. She was so deep in contemporary art. Everything was contemporary art, but she did have one Robert Crumb book because he was in that context. Mm. Um so my point is I saw a, a, a show of Robert Crump and there was a comic on the wall at David's Werner, one of the world's uh, most successful galleries. And then he talks about his success in the comic and he talks about the monetary success and he's like, oh, what, what are we going to do with this money? We, we should invest it, otherwise we lose it. Oh no, we, that's what we've been fighting against all our life. We can't invest in... in the stock market that's evil so we should buy a second home and she's like mm-hmm. oh I don't want to take care of another home and have to clean another toilet oh what are we going to do so success came to the outsider artist and he just wasn't they weren't prepared him and his wife And oh really uh, but they they are definitely so an example of uh, I don't think they concluded anything they just uh, the comic ended with stress there was no uh, solution oh right right, right. 
um, but but you, but, but you remind it, me. It, oh, sorry. In what I'm trying to say is they they came from a po- point of view where he he made a lot of comics where he made fun of fine art because it's all people who think they're very smart but they can't actually draw, and. Mm-hmm he's good at drawing so he, he he made fun of all that and just was swallowed up in it involuntarily he never pushed anything that way he he always had widely distributed work that was uh, sold in large volumes not like fancy single unit uh, status objects mm. but you're reminding me that uh, of uh, of an artist that you know you might consider an outsider artist if you didn't know anything about art um, who also does a lot of drawings David Shrigley the the British art visual mm, artist. Yeah, yeah. He makes yeah. a lot of a lot of his works like a visual pun. And by if you were to just like make if you made it out of macaroni pasta, any of his work or something like that, you'd be like, yeah. oh yeah, that's like <laughs> that's well, outsider maybe it was, artist. It's folk art. Yeah. Maybe the word outsider is also really it's about having the right friends. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what that's what I, my argument was like early on in this podcast was about the sociology. I think like it is really who surround who who influences the work and or who allows it in or out or who you know like another artist that comes to mind is barry mcgee who is a street artist um and barry mcgee did very very well and then i think you know had a few like he was a well-known street artist did some like graphic work and then had a few key exhibitions and those key exhibitions translated suddenly into a contemporary art world kind of uh career but uh you know, certainly, like one here, like Banksy, who we trash in a couple, you know, a couple episodes ago. I would not consider a part of the art world. You know, I'd say like he is an outsider artist that's incre- but Van incredibly Gogh is, popular. Was also an outsider artist. Yeah, but like you know, because Banksy does not show in museums or galleries. Um, museum and galleries kind of turn their nose up at Banksy. I've turned, I would turn my nose up at him quite often. But I've definitely, he's opened his own exhibitions. He opened a theme park uh, in England. But like, there are very few art institutions who would say like, "Ooh, we really wish we could get a Banksy show in here." You know. Um, meanwhile, his but his works sell at auction. People are like, you know, trying to chisel them out of walls and things like that right um and so you know the by every definition the world's demanding that banksy be considered an artist but the art world's like in my opinion the art world really doesn't accept him as an artist because he's broken all of their rules um, i don't know if they I, i'm not sure if they not accept him because he's broken all the rules or because they don't like the work well the work is viewed as popular right <laughs> Which yeah, but the, the, times, I like. think Keith Haring has been pretty much accepted. He's shown in a lot of museums. Yeah, uh, yeah. So maybe Banksy's work is just kind of not that good. <laughs> but then that comes down to your, ta- you know, the taste issues. I was talking to someone, this opera guy tonight. And he said his biggest influence mm, was like Cirque du Soleil, and I was like, Cirque du Soleil. That's you know, they're kind of cheesy. No, He's like, but, but they didn't start out cheesy. I think with Banksy, you could, you could argue. You could argue, okay, taste is subjective, but you can also argue that uh, Keith Haring's work is very unique. It's hard to find anyone mm-hmm. else. And then Banksy, there's tons of stencil artists that you it would be really hard to tell the difference if you saw them. And there's a stencil graffiti artist from the 80s that if you would post the two works next to each other, you couldn't tell the difference. But it's very hard to find another Keith Haring. Mm-hmm. But the, you, you wouldn't, I mean, disagree because, you know, it's now statistically proven there the that there are 
artists that are more popular than Banksy. I guess what I'm saying is that like Banksy doesn't even require the institutions or the he doesn't he's not need, he doesn't need to be an insider artist. By being an outsider artist, he actually has um, there's a certain advantage to it in, in, the, in his yeah. case. Right, like yeah. the rejection of the institution. You know, if he it was embraced by the narrative. institution, yeah, it fits his narrative exactly. Yeah. So yeah. whatever works, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. He he definitely owns it. He's not like, please accept me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you Banksy? <laughs> no, they recently figured out who Banksy was, right? Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah. Was it's, it Brad uh, Pitt? <laughs> Like and then I went and then I proceeded to forget five minutes later after reading the article, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, he's uh, he's a musician. He's from Massive Attack, right? Uh, but I just forgot his oh, name. Oh, I thought that wasn't proven. Oh, Robert Del Naja, Net Del Naja. Is it proven from uh, Massive Attack? Well, Beyond I mean, apparently, yeah, did he admit it? Was, it? Yeah, apparently uh, British DJ Goldie. Do you know Goldie? Yeah. He, he like he he said something. I, I can't remember the whole story, but uh, he revealed uh, mass that it was you know this this guy in, in some interview or something like that. I can't remember oh. exactly. Anyway, no one cares. <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter. The mystery was never. I mean, I guess the mystery is kind of like a marketing uh, gimmick in a way. Frankly, a cheesy one, but like. I mean, it captured people's imaginations, and but why? Why do you feel the need to to, to because it, it's interesting to me as an analysis of you because you seem to be so encouraging, and you have an incubator, and you'll have a lot of patience with people who need a lot of guidance, and their work is not there yet, and yeah. for some reason, there's this violent reaction against outsider art where you really feel the need to, to state that you don't like it. I've never heard that of you. Well, I don't know if I'm I'm against outsider art. I'm kind of arguing like I'm I'm for indigenous. I know, but I've never uh, on this podcast or in person. I've I've never I've never heard you speak this negatively about any artist. <laughs> about Banksy, you mean? Yeah, like, but also the 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 Visionary Museum and other things. I've never heard you because I've seen you. You're always so patient. And any artist, and, and I'm sure in your yeah. incubator, you've worked with artists whose work really needed a lot of help it was far from there so and you will have all the patience in the world okay i here's the bottom line on the visionary art museum and and that like that style of folk art and the point i was trying to make at the beginning was that i don't think like it's fine do that work but it's it ultimately it's derivative and if it was interesting it would find its way out of a folk art museum like it's antithetical just like Banksy doesn't require the institution in fact it's anti-institutional it's antithetical to show work made outside the institution in an institution it doesn't require the institution in fact and my argument generally is that the institutions that currently exist don't need to exist or shouldn't exist um, but in what fact, about they uh, often uh, do more like harm classic than good. Net, uh, net art do you feel like that museums should play a role there in preserving it, or you think it? Just yeah, I'm going to use the, the power of taboo language. Like, fuck the museum if you're an internet artist. <laughs> like, you are the museum. I, I've, I've, I've definitely, I'm from that school. Like, you have the museum in your hands. We've talked about this like a bunch of times. The internet is a living museum. You're a part of it. Like, anything else certainly is not. You know, you're not pursuing it for the right reasons, and certainly, like, so maybe your reason is to have a sustainable, happy life, and you deserve that. But you don't need the museum to support you that way. Frankly, the museums aren't paying that much anyway. So, 
if you're going to engage with a museum or you're going to engage with a gallery, it's going to be based on the terms of art history and institutional context of critique. And there's, there's very little you can do about that. I, I read somewhere that is <laughs> one of the one of the signs of being rude is disagreeing on everything. But if we agreed on everything, it wouldn't be much of a podcast. Wouldn't be so very interesting. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you here. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I so might have said too much, but I, I, I'm I used like... to I used to be of the same opinion of like, okay, if you're good at net art, that's so unique. There's not many historically. There's no net art, so you should just focus on that and fuck all the rest. But then, I really think that there's something interesting about showing things in a space next to each other because things on a screen are always after each other mm. and it's a very different thing and maybe VR 5,000 years from now will be good and like holodeck quality but right now I think seeing really Rhizome is doing the NetArt anthology for example which yeah. is a great a great project so they're keeping old NetArt projects alive by yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, by keeping them, they're all in a timeline, and you can see them after each other. But I guarantee, if there was a big room with a hundred flat screens with all those pieces scrolling automatically around you, would be an amazing. And that was similar to when I showed, I, I did this exhibition of screensavers, which is also kind of outsider art, and it's mm-hmm. a really different experience. Is walking through a room and seeing them around you without you having to click and without you going one through one and just moving around and seeing them next to each other. So this idea that you should have boundaries is, is very restrictive. And in, in, in my eyes, it's um, you set up this sort of safety tank around yourself where mm-hmm. you can't be attacked. You're like, I'm in my little museum. But no, I think you can have your own little museum and then bring that little museum next to everybody else's little museum and make a big forest of museums. Um, and I would, I would, I'm always in favor of experimentation and not saying there's a boundary here. I'm in the solo museum. Yeah. And you guys can fuck yourself. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll admit something from the day I went to the Visionary Art Museum, which is the museum. I went to a museum right after that. <laughs> I went to like uh, you know the mo- the Contemporary Art Museum in Baltimore, and I and I and I, I, I I'll admit it. I it's a traditional museum. Like they have like a section for Asian art, for African art, then like contemporary art. And they had like a, a bunch of contemporary masters. Like we had just talked about Donald Judd and I was like, oh, there's a Judd. And it's like, and then there was this amazing Oppenheim. And, and I was, and I was like in heaven again. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you're reminding me that one of the ways the human brain is like organized is spatially, right? Like our memories are organized spatially. There's this concept uh, from in the Enlightenment, where people used to like, because you couldn't own a book, you could go to a library and you could, you know, or it was expensive to have a lot of books. So you'd commit them to memory. And also, that was a way you would, when you were socializing before the internet, people memorized literature and they memorized books. And the way they did that was this with this idea of a memory palace, which was you commit like information to a fake space or fake museum inside your head. Um, and then you're able to walk through that museum to rec to recall things in a particular order, or according to a you know particular rubric. But usually order like you'd want to know, you know who came first, Rembrandt or Picasso or something like that. That's an easy one. Um, and you would like put you know Picasso in the hallway and Rembrandt in the basement or something like that. 
and you can use this to like memorize whenever they do like one of those memory games where someone memorizes a deck of cards in the order that's the the technique they use but they you your mind is organized spatially and that's like a evolutionary characteristic so maybe the museum I don't know. I, I just felt elated. Like I, I, I was appalled at the Fisher Art Museum, and then I was like, I really enjoyed. I indulged in a normal museum right after that, which is kind of ironic given what I just said. I'm very shocked um, that I've kind of taken a more egalitarian position in this episode than you. I know. I've just been all over the place, but maybe it's because I had a few drinks. And I just got the, the true <laughs> really Jeremy arises. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just a total fuck the people. Uh, spaz yeah. and a jerk. <laughs> well, no, I'm always <laughs> yeah. in favor of audiences, not gatekeepers. I mean, that is one thing that I will hold true to, no matter what. Like, I believe. Do you do you still believe that in this political sphere? That do you think gatekeepers are kind of good? That we have newspapers and institutions like that. It's funny because I was at dinner. I also sat down next to like a writer uh, and someone who's had a column in a national newspaper for over a decade and was recently fired um, and he had an arts column and he said um, you know they, the, his newspaper his Canadian newspaper national newspaper just got to the game too late they f- they they didn't figure out digital uh, stuff early enough and then they deprioritized uh, editorial or op- opinion editorials way too soon um, or you know and, and which is or not way too soon but just they, they did the wrong thing whereas the New York Times I don't know if you've noticed, but they push opinion editorial and editorial. They're they're in over investing in that. Like that's where all of their attention is coming from. And the internet's really built because there's so much information. In an age of like information overload, overload editorialization or the gatekeepers for ideas actually are important um, in terms of forming or shaping public opinion and, and guiding you, guiding us and creating yeah like value for things. Uh, and you know, so which is the you know the counter argument to what I just mentioned, but it's it is really important. When everything's important, nothing's important is the the saying. And so you do need a few people to say, well, this is important. I, all I've argued in the past is that sometimes those gatekeepers kind of choose the wrong things to be important, and uh, yeah. you know, I'd like to see them choose other things. But then it's it's a good idea for you to start showing them, leading by example, or like organize an exhibition the way you think it should be done. Yeah, I think that um, you you do see people do that from time to time, and or curators rise, or um, you know maybe like a Banksy comes along for the curatorial world or something, and they they do big exhibitions that people didn't expect to see. Like there are a few examples of that historically, um, including like I think we've mentioned like the Salon de Refusé, which is like the original uh, example of that. Whereas like you know the Salon in Paris wouldn't accept like the big art show, the big art fair in Paris wouldn't accept the Impressionists, and so they made they created their own exhibition, and that was that outside know, of art became a bit. What it was considered was that, outside of art, you, yeah. But for you, but at the time, it, yeah, yeah. For me, I mean, in retrospect, no. But at the time, it was considered outside of art, impressionism, well, yeah. And it's it's often that people think that. Um, for example, with digital art, there's a very big blur between amateur and pro, and there's a very big gradient. I think with, with other types of art, it's maybe more clear. Mm. And then you often, curators will have to defend why one thing is valuable and is art and why the other is not. Mm-hmm. But um, what was the point I was getting at? <laughs> <laughs> 
wow, I really just uh, <laughs> no idea. But it, it, yeah, no, let's talk about something else. Oh, well, we're getting near to the end of the podcast. I, I'm not sure where I was getting. I win. It, but I it, win. It, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. There's a it, there's a branding thing in art where you brand like this is valid. This will last for centuries, and this is. Uh, and it's pretty random. Like they'll just apply it to something, and they might be wrong. So it's it's important That's to true. then. Um, and quite often, like art uh, yeah. history ends up being retold, or you know, so-called revisionist history. I mean, other histories get retold, and the retelling is more interesting than the original well, story. Here's here's the example. Um, also, in different cultures, what is considered art, and um, the story was that for the Japanese. Um, when they started trading with the West, what was their art, what was the highest thing for them was the tea ceremony and the ceramics that were for the use for the tea ceremonies. That was the highest mm-hmm. plateau of the, their culture. So when the West asked, oh, send us some art, we want to see your culture, they would send cups. And these cups were wrapped in gift paper, which they didn't consider art, they would just wrap the cups in it. And then those uh, crates came over to the West and they unwrapped them. And the, the Westerners were much more interested in the wrapping paper with woodblock prints. And they're like, no, this is art. The rest is just cups. And then the West started calling that art. And then that, all of a sudden, the Japanese themselves started taking that more seriously. So the Japanese so ended up recognizing perception. that as art as well. Yeah. Yeah. But for, to them, it was, yeah, it was literally just wrapping paper. Well, I think that's a really good point to uh, tend on. Is that something is not that's not art might actually be art. It depends on your perception. Um, I can't disagree yeah. with that. Certainly, like, and that what isn't art today might be art tomorrow. What's art today might be considered, you know, garbage tomorrow. That that's less likely. Uh, you know, things are rarely devalued, but it does happen from time to time because there's too much money at stake. When you know, when <laughs> capital is that in jeopardy then you know usually people are looking for new opportunities but it can happen but but there, there are shifts in the art market where all the art all the key pieces are already placed and there's not so much movement anymore and not so much liquidity and then all of a sudden a newer wave will become more valuable because of that yeah and there are actually examples now that I think about it where an art, a hot young artist becomes super popular oh, there's yeah, a secondary sure. market and then it collapses and so and then those people are usually erased and their work is uh, becomes valueless within a generation so that's totally possible as well yeah so I guess perceptions shift we should probably uh, end on a high note <laughs> yeah. yeah I have to apologize if I've been a little bit all over the place today um, like I said I've, I've enjoyed it very much <laughs> Me too. Now we You're do have a field. Rec- we do have a field recording uh, from the Visionary Art Museum, and it, I referred to it earlier. This is for it's, uh, uh, finer listeners. It's yeah. So, so well, it his, may. The reason I, I recorded this. Yeah, it's an acquired taste, and and I thought of you, Raphael. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because I know how much you like this type of humor. So, yeah, maybe uh, we don't describe it, but just kind of dance around it, just, and people can listen. Yeah, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's from and the maybe, lower floors uh, of the Visionary Museum. Yeah, and maybe our listeners could send in their own version of this, <laughs> and that would be considered art for some people. The maybe. podcast just keeps getting better. <laughs> That's right. This is our, we're, we're on a high note. Episode four. <laughs> 
All right, everybody. All right. Enjoy some outsider sound art. Love you guys. Bye bye. Ah! <laughs>